0: We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. A couple of uh, announcements for you. Sunday school teachers, the new lessons are on the counter if you have not yet picked yours up. I uh, may encourage you to do so before you uh, leave uh, this evening. Uh, there'll be two opportunities to go out soul winning this week, Friday at 345 and then Saturday morning 10 o'clock. Uh, let me encourage you to come for one or both of those. This Sunday evening, we'll have one of our missionaries with us, Brother Dan Deom. Uh There was a little confusion. Normally, we have our missionaries in Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, uh, but he is elsewhere Uh, At another church in the area. So he'll be with us this coming Sunday evening. So let me encourage you to come back uh, and be a part of that. Uh, As I mentioned in prayer, the last Sunday of this month, the 28th, uh, that's Memorial Day weekend, is uh, a special Sunday. I'll be honest, I, I don't know everything that's going on. I've chosen to stay out of it. I know there's food, Okay. And Baptists and food go well together. There's going to be a dinner on the grounds under the tent outside after the service that morning. Uh, there's a sign up on the, uh, in the hallway out there. If you are planning to come, if you could sign up, that is helping those in charge. Make sure that we have enough of the supplies that the church provides for that. Uh, normally for these type of things, there's a there's a grill out there if you want to bring in hot dogs, hamburgers, steaks, chicken, or whatever for your family, then you can grill that up. Uh, If you can bring a main dish and a salad or dessert to pass, we just put it out, load the tables down, and we'll have a good time of fellowship afterwards. Again, if you've not yet signed up, please uh, uh, do so, uh, helping those in charge. If you have specific questions, don't ask me. I don't know. I'll make something up. Uh, See, probably either... Tim Bish or Tim Reamers, the Tims. I think they have it, uh, and they will help you with that. And did we find the book of Ephesians yet? I know we've been studying uh, the book of Acts, and we're, we're not done. We are uh, winding down. We are uh, ready to start chapter number 20 out of 27. In the 19th chapter of Acts, we read the history of the establishment of the great church at Ephesus. Um, I'm not going to have the the map necessarily up there tonight, so I'm not turning back and forth uh, quite as much. Paul spent uh, uh, two years and a number of months there, almost actually, if you look at the chronology, it may have been closer to three years total. It was his longest ministry of any church that he planted. It was an, an amazingly spiritual ministry. From that one city of Ephesus, the gospel went out through the entire region of Ephesus, an area that is today half of the country of Turkey, massive area. The Bible clearly says in Acts chapter 19 that all they that lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That didn't mean everybody got saved, but they all heard it there were some great churches that were established out of the church of Ephesus. The church at Laodicea, at Colossae, uh, the church at Pergamum, Smyrna, uh, the churches in Revelation, those seven churches, um, they all started at this time out of the church at Ephesus. A great soul winning ministry. It was also a ministry that had a lot of spiritual warfare. We know that the, the Lord gave Paul, as with other, the other apostles, um, sign gifts that uh, healings and things like that that confirmed the word of the Lord to their audience in that day because the New Testament had not yet been given or completed. One of the sign gifts that Paul manifested in Ephesus was casting unclean spirits or casting demons out of people. Ephesus was steeped in paganism. What was the main temple and religion in Ephesus? Can anybody remember? Diana of the Ephesians. Um, and uh, was one of the, that temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it wasn't the Ephesians who listed this. It was a historian named Herodotus who listed the temple of Diana as the number one of those seven wonders of the ancient world. Because of the occult influence... Uh, of, of that, that pagan worship, um, satanic influence was strong within the city of Ephesus. We know from Acts 19 that many of those converts came out of that lifestyle. There were some Jewish people that had gotten saved, but the, the, the predominance of people that got saved in Ephesus, it appears, were Gentile people. Um, we know that they brought all of their, their books their their occult items together and they had a giant bonfire service. The value was 50,000 pieces of silver which would be somewhere around a million dollars worth of satanic paraphernalia that they burned up uh, in today's economy. So the, the roots of occultism and things like that were very, very deep in the city of Ephesus. We know that Paul faced a lot of opposition. From that city, not just there was the riot uh, when you know the silversmiths were upset they were losing business because so many people got saved uh, and so forth, uh, but we, we got little glimpses. Last week, we walked through some of Paul's writings in 1st and 2nd Timothy and then 1st Corinthians 15, and we find out that behind the scenes, what we didn't learn in the book of Acts, Paul faced a lot of warfare. In 1 Corinthians 15, he described it this way, if I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus. Now we know from history, the practice of putting Christians in the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals had not yet started yet. That was another 20 or 30 years down the road historically. Paul probably was not referring to that because Christians who got thrown to wild animals didn't survive. They were martyred for the cause of Christ. Paul was more than likely referring uh, to the spiritual warfare. We looked at Jude last week that false teachers were described there as brute beasts. And that's what Paul's talking about. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 who pastored in Ephesus. After Paul uh, moved out of that area, he talked to him about a man named Alexander the coppersmith. Paul said he did me much evil and then he told Timothy of whom be thou aware also you be aware of him you be cautious around that man and he used the word evil uh, to describe whatever this man Alexander did with him there was something about Ephesus that in Paul's life and ministry was unusual from his very first missionary journey starting in Acts chapter 13 When Paul would would go through a region, before he went home he almost always reversed course went back and saw all those churches he started again and strengthened and encouraged them in the Lord. When he would start the next missionary journey he often went back to the places he started on the first one and he would go back and strengthen them all over again. Going back to the churches he started was a common practice. Um, Some 30 Two years ago, the Lord allowed uh, my my family and I to start a church in Jeanette, Pennsylvania, Heritage Baptist Church. I don't go back every year, but I've been back a number of times since I moved here. We've been here 25 years. And I will go back just to see the people that got saved while we were there uh, and to see how they're doing and to see Pastor Ross, who's been pastoring there uh, since we moved this way. And a lot of pastors would do that, and Paul always did, but not with Ephesus. When he left Ephesus at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, he never went back. He did leave Ephesus, and he crossed the Aegean Sea, and he started up with Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and worked his way down through Macedonia and Achaia, spent about three months in Corinth again, and then he went backwards one more time, but when, he, uh, when, when he's coming down through Asia, he completely skipped Ephesus. He, he never went back. He went a little bit south to an island location, a place called Miletus, and he sent a message up to the leadership at, at the church at Ephesus, and they came down in Acts 20. We will start studying that Lord willing next Wednesday night he met with them, but not in Ephesus. In Miletus, there was something about Ephesus. Paul never went back. Now, Paul wasn't a coward. I don't think any of us would think that of him. Paul was a very bold man. When that riot was going on in, in Ephesus for, you know, for hours and hours, Paul tried to rush into that stadium, and the brethren had to re- restrain him from doing so. Paul didn't back down from a fight. He, he wasn't that kind of a, a person But again, he described the ministry there, an aspect of it of fighting with beasts. This Alexander the coppersmith who did him a lot of evil, Demetrius the silversmith who incited the riot, um, there was a spiritual warfare aspect of it. So when we come to the book of Ephesians, the letter, he wrote to that church. We understand that those people understood Spiritual warfare wasn't just a novelty to talk about, that it was the real deal. It was something to consider. Now, you're in Ephesians 6. We're going to look at a familiar portion of Scripture, but I'd like you to go to 2 Timothy 3. If you've been listening, where is Timothy pastoring when this letter was written to him? Where? Where? He's in Ephesus, the city that we've been talking about. Look, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That word perilous means dangerous, difficult times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. I often, tongue-in-cheek, joke about the fact we're the generation who invented the selfie. I remember when cameras were uh, for taking pictures of other people. Now we take pictures of ourselves, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Men should be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. He was speaking to Timothy about present day, in the last days, perilous times. He he described what people would become more and more like, and he told Timothy in his lifetime, you turn away from people like that. You stay away from them. You be on guard against them. Now, beloved, if Timothy was warned about the last days 2,000 years ago, Does it not stand to reason that we are even more so in the last days today? Yes or no? Oh, absolutely. And all of those things starting in verse 2 down through verse number 4, or verse number 5, do they not describe our present day culture? Consider that last phrase, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, establishing, if you will, their own sense of right and wrong and holiness and so forth. Um, The former speaker of the House of Representatives, who stands for everything evil that there is, who believes that a, a child can still be murdered after it's delivered out of the mother's womb. If the mother decides she doesn't want it, it's okay to kill it that's evil who whose city is known for the Sodomite lifestyle the bible says that is evil that individual the former speaker of the house made the statement saying we are doing god's work having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof the word power means authority this book tells us what is godly and what is not. Amen? It's not a political party's platform that decides that. So I'm I'm taking the time on this because I, I think we've almost become jaded to this idea of spiritual warfare, or we're not taking it as seriously as Paul's audience would in the letter to the Ephesians when he wrote it to them, and I think by doing so we're making a grave mistake. Can I get you with me now in Ephesians chapter number 6? Paul begins in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Are we are we strong Christians? By the way, he didn't say um, be someone who has been saved for a long time. Did you know that a brand new Christian can be strong in the Lord? Did you know that? I can even show you from the Bible. Would you like to see it? Or well, you're gonna. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where Saul of Tarsus got saved. He's a new convert. And in verse number 22, this is right after he got saved and baptized. Verse 22, but Saul increased the more in what? In strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this, the man he was preaching, is very Christ, is really the promised Messiah. Here's a brand new convert that the Bible said increased the more in strength. Sometimes we have the idea that, well, I've been saved 20 years. In my case, I've been saved. Uh, This year will mark 51 years of being saved. Doesn't that automatically make somebody a strong Christian? And the answer to that is no. Look, if you would, the 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when you get there, turn to chapter 3. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth. He spent nearly two years in that church. Um, He went back to that church on more than one occasion and spent several more months with them. By the time he wrote this letter to them, they had been saved for quite a long time. We know from chapter 1, Paul was their founding pastor Apollos, who was a man mighty in the scriptures and an eloquent man, he came to uh, Corinth after Paul left and pastored for a time. We know that Peter, also known as Cephas, was there, and he either pastored the church at Corinth for a while or he came through and ministered there for a while. Uh, Paul told him in chapter 1, you come behind in no spiritual gift. They had had the best Bible preachers in the history of Bible preachers. And Paul writes about them in chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, meaning they're saved now, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, that means fleshly, even as unto babes in Christ. I've fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it neither yet now are ye able they've been saved for a long time they've been under paul's ministry apollos ministry cephas ministry and paul said you have never come to the place where you were able to bear strong meat you couldn't do it and he said and even now after all this time neither are ye yet able so Acts 9, here's a brand new convert who's strong in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, here's an entire church of people that have been saved for a long time, and they're spiritual babies. Do you ever see a baby deadlift? You know, newborn baby. We're about to have another one, you know, come into our house. Wesley won't be able to lift his head. He won't be able to feed himself. He won't be able to do anything for a very, very long time. Okay? Okay. Paul is back in Ephesians chapter 6 is saying, look, I don't care how long you've been saved, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. We're strong in a lot of things. You hear me talk illustration-wise about the gym and training and stuff like that. I believe that we ought to take care of the temple of God. That's our body. This is how we serve God. God. Uh, I I regret that I waited until I was sixty to get serious about that, uh, and so forth. And uh, there is a certain benefit to eating healthy, exercising, whatever you do, and, and so forth, because it's with this body we serve Christ. But the truth of the matter is, uh, this body, no matter how no matter how strong I can build it to be, is going to die someday. Am I right? It's going to die someday. What matters is, was I strong in the Lord, not strong in the flesh or the body. I, I think it's it's fine to be skilled at various activities and things like that. There are some people that have some hobbies that you're just you do amazing at, and so forth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you ought to be you you ought not be stronger at anything than you are in the things of God. No teenager ought to know more about Fortnite than they do about the Gospels. But most of them do. Most of them do. Um, They're fascinated with that. But we're not told to be strong in video games. We're not told to be strong in Mario. We're told to be strong in what? In the Lord and in the power of his might. So that is his opening salvo in this discussion. And these are people that understand the need for this because they came out of such spiritual darkness. He goes on, verse number 11, put on the whole armor of God. I have the word whole circled in my Bible that I'm teaching from tonight. The whole, the complete armor of God. We don't get to pick and choose on this one. The whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles is an interesting word. It gives us the idea of deception. It gives us the idea of subtlety. But it actually comes from a word that we get the word methodology. Methodology. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians about the devil. He said, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The devil just has a way that he works. Paul said, we're not ignorant. We we know how he works. We know he's a deceiver. We know he's the accuser of the, the brethren. We know he's an adversary who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We know that he's a liar and the father of it. The Bible tells us a lot of things about it. The Bible says that you and I are to be spiritually strong so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. You're not going to stand up against the devil in your own strength. He's smarter than you are. He's been around a whole lot longer than you and I have. By the way, he knows the Bible too. If you don't think that's true, read Matthew uh, chapter 4 when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Jesus quoted Scripture to the devil. And what did the devil turn around and do to Jesus? He He quoted Scriptures back. Now he quotes it wrong. He takes it out of context. It's very subtle and all of those kind of things. I'm not told to stand up in my own intellect or my own willpower and fight against the wiles of the devil. I'm supposed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, question class How does a person get strong physically? What's that? Lifting weights, she did it one arm. She's so strong, she can do it with one arm. Lifting weights, how else do you get strong physically? What are some things you can do? Eating healthy. Eating healthy has a lot to do with it. What else can you do to get physically strong? Exercise. Um, You can walk. Walking is actually a good thing. You can run. Um, raising snakes does not help you be strong spiritually. I'm, I'm, I just wanted to get that out on, on there. Um, there's all kinds of things you can do. In, in American culture, there is a fitness craze, isn't there? Um, I have a, a Planet Fitness black card that I keep because no matter where I travel, I can find a Planet Fitness. I was in Turner, Maine, uh, two weeks ago tonight, and there was a Planet Fitness like three miles away. Turner remains in the middle of nowhere, okay? It, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, gyms are popping up everywhere, and people are spending enormous amounts of money. We know how to be strong physically, so how do we get strong spiritually? I'm supposed to be strong in the Lord. Steve's got a good answer back there. He's sitting on the back row going like this. You can't ignore this book and be spiritually strong. If the only time you open your Bible is Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you come to church. I'm glad you bring your Bible, but you are not going to be spiritually strong. Um, And and you can't just read your Bible uh, fervently for a few weeks and then put it down. It's consistency. Uh, In his law doth he meditate. How often, Proverbs. I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 1, verse 2? Day and night. Day and night. So Paul is talking to these people who were aware of his struggles. They came out of that realm. He says, you need to put on the whole armor of God. It is interesting, when Paul penned Ephesians chapter 6, he was in the company 24-7 of Roman soldiers. This is one of his, uh, it's not necessarily a prison epistle such as Philippians written from the jail, but he was under arrest. That started in Jerusalem, and for the rest of his life, anytime he looked to either side, there was a Roman soldier around him. So it's only fitting that the Holy Spirit would instruct him to say, now look at that soldier. That soldier has been equipped in that day and age to be the most powerful soldier on any battlefield. Now, I realize their armor in that day would not protect them against our weapons of today, but in the first century, the Roman army was the best trained and the the most well-equipped army, and that's why they conquered the then known world. So Paul's looking at all of that saying, these guys know how to be a soldier. You and I need to learn how to do that. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles, the subtle methodology of the devil. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and and blood. You and I think our problem's people. And I guess to a certain extent it's true. How many of you, there are people, if if, if you remember the old television commercial, you wish you could take a box of Calgon, dump it over them, and say, just take them away. How many know the commercial I'm talking about? Uh, People are people. It's just I don't care where you go. Well, I'm going to go find a perfect church. Please don't join it. You'll ruin it the minute you walk through the door. There is no such place. Uh, but Paul reminds us our real batter. I know Alexander the coppersmith, he said, did me much evil. Timothy, be thou aware of him also. But Timothy, Alexander isn't your big problem. We tend to do that, don't we? We tend to do that. Um, a face comes to mind or a political party or a movement or something like that. Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Bible does not really go through verse 12 and help us delineate the difference between principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. But the idea there is in the spirit realm, we're we're going to talk about um, the unclean, the, the the unholy spirit realm, the devil's realm. There's a hierarchy. He, he's talking about military. He's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. Various branches of our military, they all have, you know, an order. You know, uh, generals, admirals, and everybody under them, depending on what branch it is. And the higher you go in rank, the more people that you are over, the more authority that you command. Um, and, and, and that type of thing. And it appears that in the spiritual realm, the same, the same thing is going on. There's a spiritual warfare. Um, I want you to see something. Revelation chapter 2. He talks about powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. It's all plural. Did you know the devil is not omnipresent? There's only one person that's omnipresent, and that's God. The devil can be in one place at a time, but he's got a whole bunch of worker bees that are just out there doing his thing. Um, Revelation chapter 2, in one of the letters to these seven churches, look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos, probably started out of the church at Ephesus. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works... And where thou dwellest, read the next phrase with me, church, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name. The word seat also means throne. In the day when this letter was written, Jesus said, Satan's capital city was this city of Pergamos. Do you ever stop and wonder, I wonder where his capital city is today? I can come up with some ideas on that, and you probably can too. But he's probably got one. If he had one then, doesn't it stand to reason that he's got one now, base of operations, you know, that type of thing. Um, could you imagine being the church at Pergamos, and uh, your church is in the very town where Satan's throne is? Can you imagine the darkness in that place? Can you imagine the battles that they had to fight? Can you imagine knocking on doors in Pergamos? Where Satan's seat was at that time. Going back to Ephesians chapter six, we've got this warfare. we've got to understand it is a spiritual one. Yes, Satan uses people. We looked last week in Second Samuel, that I'm sorry, Second Chronicles, that uh, Satan wanted to, to rise up against Israel, and so he provoked David, the man after God's own heart, to do something prideful and wrong by numbering the people of Israel. We saw in Acts chapter 5 in that church at Jerusalem where thousands of people were getting saved. God was doing amazing things. They had a unity. I don't, I'm not even sure we completely comprehend. Yet in Acts chapter 5, Satan entered in the heart of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. By the way, they weren't immoral. They were just prideful. They needed a pat on the back. They were glory hounds. They saw Barnabas getting nicknamed by the apostles, the son of consolation, because he had some land sold. It gave the money to the church to feed all of those poor people, uh, all of the people from out of town that, that had stayed after Pentecost. And they wanted in on some of that. And so they sold some land, but they didn't give it all. They just told the church they gave it all. They lied about it. And Peter said, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Satan can use people. We just need to make sure we're not some of the ones he's using. Amen? Okay? But please remember this. It is a spiritual warfare. So he's told us in verse 11 that you and I are supposed to put on the whole armor of God. I have three little books with me um, tonight that is all told there's about... Between 900 and 1,000 pages here. This was written in 1655. Um, these 1,000 pages are a commentary by a, a Puritan pastor named William Gurnall, again, 1655, um, and it covers Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Nine verses of the Bible in here. It's one of the most amazing discussions uh, on the armor of God uh, that I have ever read. and, and uh, it, it's you know we're supposed to be the, the you know, the higher education world and stuff like that. I have to get dictionaries and look up some of the words he uses uh, and stuff like that. There's a lot can be said about what follows here. And in my, my point tonight, is not to go through them and and dissect every one of them. We've done that in in different sermon series. It's to help maybe wake us up to the fact that I don't think we're wearing the armor of God or we're not wearing all of it. We're we're like going out to battle with maybe a helmet on um, and the rest of us is exposed. Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. So we know the... We recognize the enemy in verse number 12. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, now that you know the enemy, take unto you the whole armor of God. God said it twice in verse 11 and verse 13. Why do you suppose he said it twice? He's emphasizing it. This is important. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now I want us to look at that verse 13 just for a moment. That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I study words. I get my Strong's Dictionary out all the time when I'm reading and studying my Bible. That word withstand, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, that word means to oppose, to actively oppose okay how many in this room are against abortion okay okay we are against it so in a sense we are opposed to it how many have ever gone to a pro-life rally how many have ever picketed outside of an abortion clinic How many have written letters or made phone calls to your congressmen on a state or national level about the subject when legislation is being debated on the subject? Okay, a few. Good. A a few. Do you realize we're all against it, but only a few of us have really opposed it? I'm I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. None None of us are doing everything that we can. I want you to understand when he says, um, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, it means to actively oppose. We are to be more than just against something. We are supposed to be out there doing something to stop it. Um, a, a wise man once said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Um, Take unto you the whole armor of God. This is, if you will, going on the offense. Going on the offense. I, I use divorce in not saying that that is the cause that we need to take up as our rally cry. We are talking about a spiritual warfare uh, of wickedness. You and I are supposed to be uh, on the offense. We are, we are supposed to be standing for right, standing for truth, letting our voice be known for that which is wrong. Um, I'm... I'm dismayed about a lot of stuff that i hear in our country these days but at the same time i am emboldened when you see what's going on in a lot of these school board meetings all around the country where moms and dads and in some cases a lot more than we hear about students themselves are standing up saying let me read from a book that i found in my library and they start reading it. And that weak-kneed school board that thinks it's okay to be in there makes the kids stop because it's pornographic and it's vile. Those people are on the offense. Amen? So I, I realize there's a lot of junk going on, but I'm, I'm still glad there's, all, there's still some people standing up, um, trying to, to do that, which is right, going on the offense. That's what it means to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, verse 13 to stand. That means hold your ground. This is defense. Football players, anybody here like football, soccer, things like that? To to have a winning team, do you not have to have both a good offense where you're driving the ball down the other side, but you have to have a good defense, not letting the other team get get the ball on, on your side. Am I right? Got to have them both. If you, if you are weak on one of those, you're probably not going to the Super Bowl. If you're on the Steelers team, you're not going no matter what you do. Uh, you know, that type of thing. You and I as believers are supposed to have the offense and the defense. Jesus told Peter in Matthew chapter 18, um, he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And he wasn't talking about building it on Peter. Peter's a stone. Jesus is the rock. Peter himself said that he, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but Jesus said, "Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Okay? How many of you are familiar with that? Matthew chapter 18. Is a gate an offensive or a defensive weapon? Do you pick up a gate and go out and beat the other army with it? No, you get inside of a fort and close the gate, and it's your defense. So if the gates of hell are not to to prevail against the church, that means the church is on the attack, beating down the gates of hell. I don't think we're doing that. We're just kind of coasting. We're just kind of maintaining. We want church to be an entertainment center. That's why... Sunday night, Christians are filling up sports arenas and movie theaters and restaurants and all kinds of other places, but not in church. Well, if you had more entertainment stuff at church, we're not gonna have, we're gonna, not gonna turn this into entertainment. Do you think the Navy SEALs on, on uh, that island, Coronado Island off of the coast of San Diego, do you think they're sitting there teaching those guys to play video games? and see if they can finish all of Mario Kart. Are you kidding? There, Those guys, have you ever read about SEAL training? There is zero entertainment value in that. The church is supposed to be where we're getting armed for battle. Am I right? But we don't see it that way so much anymore. But Paul told Timothy, said, in the last days perilous times shall come and Timothy was to take, take a, uh, uh, action in his day and we're 2,000 years progressed, it's worse now. We're closer to the end of things now and, and we're dropping our guard more than we ever have. And brethren, these, just, these things just ought not to be. We're gonna come back to Ephesians 6. I, I was gonna finish this tonight but I do a disservice to that. But we're gonna come back I'm not rabbit trailing. We've studied the church at Ephesus and the book of Ephesians was written to that church. The Bible is tied together, but I would like you to turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And we will be in chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 23 let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Doesn't that sort of sound like standing? Let's hold our ground. Does this sort of sound like that to you? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. I know people that are very good at provoking. I had children that were very good at provoking. I've got grandchildren. My grandson, Jack, is a master at provoking Finn to lose his temper. I mean, Jack can push those buttons. Gwen is a good button pusher. She really is. She knows exactly how to get Nate stirred up, and she's good at it. And usually when we think of provoke, that's what we think. Here the Bible uses the word provoke in another sense. You and I are supposed to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We're supposed to be doing everything we can to encourage each other to live for God. We ought ought to be out there encouraging each other. Hey, you you coming to church tonight? Hey, you coming to men's prayer meeting? Hey, you going to come out soul winning? I need a partner on Saturday. We ought to be doing everything we can. Praying with and for each other. Um, Again, verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Do you realize in the first century there were people already starting to see, well, church is okay, but it's not really all that okay. We thought church was essential only when they told us we couldn't come here. Okay, and that's when we all put a little sticker on our Facebook page, church is essential. But once they said, okay, you can go to church, okay, it's not that essential anymore. Evidently, in the first century, they had some of the same issue, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. That's going back to verse 24. And look at this next phrase, and so much the more. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. In the last days, perilous times shall come. Is anybody seeing the day approaching? Anybody? So does that mean we probably ought to have less church? What do you think? Maybe we should have just like five-minute sermons, right? Instead of whenever I get done sermons. Um, No, he said, and, and, and so much the more. Uh, we ought to be provoking one another to love and good works so much the more. He, he's not talking about walking around like the spiritual police, like, you know, Barney Fife, you know, that type of thing. He's just talking about, you know, do your best to encourage each other in the things of God. Brother Howes used to say at the end of his radio broadcast every single day, be good to everybody because everybody's having a rough time. And that's a true statement. You and I ought to be doing it and so much the more. So, If they needed that in the first century and the Ephesians needed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might so that they could withstand, go in the offense in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand their ground, not let the devil gain any of their territory and they needed the whole armor of God to do that, how many would agree we need it even more? Is anybody else with me on that? And that's where we're going to stop tonight. Can I get you to read Ephesians chapter 6 as homework? Tim gives homework on Sunday and tells you to read a few chapters. Read Ephesians chapter 6. Take some notes. Take some notes on it. And as you read it and you read that section of the armor of God, please honestly ask yourself, am I wearing the whole armor of God? Hopefully you've got some of it. But the issue is, are we wearing the whole armor of God? There was a famous king in the Old Testament that went out to battle. He already knew that he was going to die in that battle, and he was trying to thwart the prophecy of Elijah the prophet. The battle went on throughout the course of the day, and one of the enemy soldiers, it was a Syrian soldier, the Bible says he drew a bow at a venture. He wasn't really aiming. He just twang. Maybe it's his last arrow. Maybe he's ready to go home and get dinner. I don't know what it was. The Bible says he drew a bow at a venture. And it went flying through the air. And this king is armored to the hilt. But he had one place in his armor that wasn't fastened closed. And that arrow found its way right in there and he received a mortal wound, and he bled to death in his chariot. Anybody know the king's name? That was King Ahab. The one place that wasn't covered by his armor is where the enemy's arrow found him. And you mark it down, the one place where I don't have my armor on, that's where the enemy's going to shoot for. Father, thank you for the Bible. Lord, messages like this to me are so...